Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 336, recorded January 18th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 135. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring all electric and hybrid electric technologies. Learn more about the technologies Ford is bringing to its vehicles at Ford.com slash technology. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your privacy online with this guy right here. What did we come up with? The Security General? The Security... <laughs> the, the, no, it was good, too. I it forgot was good. what it was. Dang, instead of the yeah. man, the myth, the legend? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Definitely, we want something better than that. We had, I'm sure that someone in the chat room will... will we had a name for Steve. We had a name. Anyway, Steve Gibson is uh, Explainer-in-Chief. That's what we had. Explainer ah, in like chief. It. Steve Gibson is here from GRC.com. He uh GRC by the way, stop banging your uh, your uh, video player or your TV. Uh, I know people at home are going, wait a minute, something's wrong. <laughs> the color isn't maybe I can get that. No, we're in black and white today because this show is being recorded on January eighteenth, which uh is a day marked across the internet uh, uh by protests against the intellectual property bills, uh SOPA and PIPA in the US uh, Congress and uh, House and uh, Senate, respectively. Um, many sites have gone dark, including Wikipedia, Reddit, and others. Uh, we decided not to go dark, just dark gray, uh, in order to uh, remind people to call their member of Congress, to let their member of Congress know they don't want them to support SOPA and PIPA, and to let people around the world, because we have a vast global audience, know they are not immune. Many countries uh, are being lobbied by the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is essentially a front for American content creation companies like the MPAA and the RIAA to pass laws they have in some countries like France and Spain. Um, so you are not immune either. Uh, it may not be called SOPA. It may not be called PIPA. It certainly won't be called SOPA and PIPA in the U.S. next time around. But these huh. companies will not stop until they break the Internet to protect their business models. It won't work. It doesn't work. Uh, and, it, and it's uh, something we have to defend against because as you, anybody who watches this show, knows the Internet is the last best hope for mankind, <laughs> and we want to protect it. So that's why we're in black and white, just so you know. Uh, it is not the fault of your of your TV or your video player. We have uh, not degraded the audio quality, however. Yeah, and those of you listening at an audio, we're still, like, huh? we, we've always yeah. been in black and white, so <laughs> or whatever color your imagination comes up with. What's the topic uh, du jour, Steve? We're in Q&A mode today. So this is episode 336 of Security Now with uh, our 135th Q&A. Wow. We've got uh, our regular round of updates and news. And as expected, the WPS, the Wi-Fi Protected Security issue, is alive and well. So we've got a bunch of news about that. And in fact, um, we're going to next week have a really fun propeller head episode about the protocol because... Um, 
first, let's see, I think the first instance was an engineer at Nokia explained sort of cryptically. He he sent me a, a, a tweet saying that it would not work what I had suggested last week to to have the access point not deny that the first half of the 8-bit or 8-digit pin was wrong. And I thought, oh, okay. Then uh, Stefan Weibach, who wrote the the disclosure, uh, and I had some discussion on Twitter, and then Dan Kaminsky got involved, and he and, I, and Dan and I moved it off to email to to confab about this. And that all caused me to take a much closer look at the protocol. And now I, I get all the subtle details, and they are really interesting because what, what the, the Wi-Fi Alliance tried to implement is something called zero-knowledge proof, where both sides prove that they have knowledge of something without giving away what it is because this isn't a one-way authentication where where it's only the user who wants to prove to the access point they know the access point's pin it's a mutual authentication because you also want to prevent a rogue access point from impersonating the one that you're trying to connect to. So you so you need to prove that you know the pin to the access point while simultaneously it proves it knows its own pin, which a rogue access point wouldn't. Anyway, it's really interesting. And there's some new crypto primitives involved that we haven't talked about before. So Next week, we're going to explain zero-knowledge proofs and mutual simultaneous authentication and why it still doesn't work. I love that. Yeah. Some uh, some computer science coming at you. Good good crypto science. Yes. Yeah, I like it. Well, uh, let, before we get to the questions, I presume there is uh, security news to talk about. So let's let's uh, get to it. This second Tuesday, we, we did the show last week Monday. Right. <laughs> so we right. missed the so second we, Tuesday. And we didn't know in detail what Microsoft was going to do. They did release, uh, as expected, a handful, small handful of fixes. One of the things that they did fix, we were hoping for, which was the problem with Beast, B-E-A-S-T, which we talked about extensively. You remember that there were some researchers out on a beach somewhere who came up with a way of breaking uh, the block encryption aspects of SSL. We did a whole podcast on BEAST, which is in the acronym for Browser Exploit Against SSL and TLS. I don't know how these guys get these great acronyms, but that's just that's a great acronym. Anyway, that has been fixed in Windows as of last Tuesday. Um, the other significant update, because Adobe also had theirs last Tuesday and fixed problems that we had been hoping they were going to fix in in Reader and Acrobat and Flash. But Oracle released their big quarterly update just yesterday. So on January 17th, 
which fixed 78 problems in MySQL, which of course is the big SQL database product. One of them was very important because it could be it was a vulnerability which could be exploited remotely without login credentials. So they didn't talk about this before, but now that they have it fixed on their page that that enumerates the things that they're they're claiming are fixed, they're now really pushing people to make sure that whatever products they're using which have MySQL as as part of their backend database that they go through whatever procedure on a product by product basis is necessary to update themselves to the latest and greatest as of yesterday. So I wanted to pass that on to our listeners that, that there is some important things that were released. And as often is the case, it could be that bad guys knowing that there is now a no login remotely exploitable vulnerability, which has been fixed, they'll, plow in, figure out what that is, and then go after people who haven't fixed it. So anytime you got MySQL exposed to the internet, you know, there's cause for concern. So you want to make sure that you you're up to date with this patch. Um in news, there's been some talk, and we've been talking about it recently, of so-called slow motion denial of service attacks against servers um we've um i've recently talked about the idea of stalling tcp connections um we were talking about how tcp throttles itself with the notion of advertising a window of of buffer space meaning that for example when the when the client is is acknowledging the receipt of data, one of the fields in the acknowledgement shows the server how much receive buffer it has. So that allows the, the server to send data in advance of its acknowledgement. And that's a beautiful way of, of having TCP deal with the delays which are inherent in any packet-oriented um, free autonomous routing system like the internet uses. So this is part of the super cleverness of of our internet protocols that makes the whole notion of of a routed packet network work. Unfortunately, there are always ways to exploit these things. And one of the things you can do is you can advertise that you, for whatever reasons of your own, have no buffer space available. And, and what that does is that shuts down the server's ability to send data to you, causing it to to send acknowledgments every so often, a so-called window probe, to continually ask you for new acknowledgments of that probe, hopefully telling it that you've freed up some buffer space. So the point is that that what hackers are now intrigued by is not the big flooding attacks, which is what they've been doing, but various types of slow motion attacks. And so both researchers and hackers are now experimenting with giving servers, web servers on the internet, publicly available servers, new kinds of grief by 
either slowly dribbling to the server their their request or forcing the server to slowly dribble out its reply. And so I'm just sort of seeing in the news um, a sort of a continual flow of new attacks. And th- th- this is problematic because there are existing now lots of tools for responding to flooding attacks where the where there are upstream gateways that that attempted to verify that incoming connection requests for example are valid or not the problem with these new attacks is all of the requests are valid they're just very slow and so what servers normally do is receive a request and respond to it and they're done they close the connection these hold the connections open and overwhelm the server's connection resources rather than the the bandwidth resources they use in fact almost no bandwidth what they use is many 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 more simultaneous connections to the servers and that's a new aspect that Right now, there aren't any good defenses for. So what will happen is, of course, the, the people who provide border security um, and, and abuse prevention defenses will have to come up with a new, a new paradigm for looking at, for example, how many connections are open and whether the connections are actually doing a, a reasonable amount of work and terminate connections – which are in this slow motion attack mode. So anyway, just it's one more thing that the bad guys have come up with to, um, you know, to to wreak havoc on on the net. I like and, slow motion attack mode. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a new move in the in a fighting <laughs> game. Yeah, Mortal Kombat slow motion attack mode. And I did. I just a little blip on my radar was a note. That we talked some time ago, you'll remember, Leo, that a the Air Force base in Nevada, from which our our drones are being remotely oh, piloted, yes. was infected because it was running Windows. Oy. And so many people were responded by saying, "Wait a minute, our drone systems <laughs> are, are are being driven by Windows?" Because you know everyone is always sending me. Um, Pictures of ATM machines with yeah, a crashed blue you know, screens of death. Yeah, blue screens of death, or or a little dialogue saying you must update your security patches. Click here to proceed. You know, and meanwhile the whole ATM is non-functional because you know the system is waiting for someone to click a button that using a mouse that doesn't exist and so forth. Anyway, the point is that uh, it, it sort of made the low-level security news that that Air Force base had moved away from Windows. They were switching to Linux. So, yay. Yay. <laughs> what, yay. What Although, I, I mean, Linux is more secure. It's better. It's more mission stable. I, I wonder if it's, I mean, it's there's still aren't there still viruses and attacks on Linux? Of course there are. In well, fact, of course. Yeah. And, but I guess, I, I guess the, the way to say it would be there are still vulnerabilities. Right. However, they're not, they're, they're just not the big, they're just not the big, um, vulnerabilities being developed for windows which is still the majority platform right and and still you know everyone's big target um we had a big breach 
that happened um, just recently. The online website Zappos, Z-A-P-P-O-S, was hit by a major database breach. Um, They they sent out email to 24 million customers telling them that they had expired their passwords and giving them instructions for how to go about re-authenticating themselves and and using a new password. Um, so their names, their email addresses, their password hashes, and in some cases, the last four digits of their credit card numbers were were lost, essentially, in this big database breach. They did not lose the critical credit card purchasing records with the full credit card numbers. So that wasn't lost. But but um, still, the login information was. So as soon as Zappos realized this is what happened, they shut that down. They, they expired everyone's existing passwords and began sending out email to a, you know, a massive customer base, all 24 million customers explaining that they would have to change their password. So, and by every measure, I thought they responded well. They sent out a letter to their employees to explain what had happened. They attached to that letter the letter that was being sent out by email to all the customers so that everyone would be up to speed. They did suspend their telephone system because they were concerned that it would be completely submerged under um, people choosing to phone rather than use their online resources. So um, anyway, that's, uh, that's in our breach news. Yeah. Um, Poor Zappos. The, uh, I think they handled it well, though, didn't they? Oh, I think they really did. They, you know, it's like you never want this to happen. It's never going to be good, but you want to be responsible. And, and they, they, they separated the credit card numbers out. I presume they were using salt because it sounded like people were not getting stuff in the clear, right? And they said Correct. something that was really good, which is if you if you uh, use the same password on other sites, change that too. Yes. Which is smart. Yes, and so they 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 were storing hashes, and it was right. hashes that escaped, not the passwords themselves. Much better. So yeah, they they did. Uh, I think you know they responded as well as they could have. Right. Um, there is now. We talked last week about Reaver, which was the the open source tool that had whose source code had been posted on Google Code, uh, produced by Tactical Network Solutions. There is now Reaver Pro, as we would have expected. And as I predicted, we're beginning to see the release of additional tools. Uh, SourceSec Security Research uh, released WP Scan and WP Spy tools, which are Python scripts. Um, and those actually existed some time ago. Um, they're not Reaver. But they are scanning tools. They they presented these at Chicago Con, and they said WP Scan actively sends 802.11. That's Wi-Fi's uh, IEEE code. Uh, 802.11 probe requests to access points that advertise WPS support. It then parses out the WPS information element in the resulting probe response and displays the results. 
This is a very useful fingerprinting tool since nearly all new routers have WPS enabled by default. And most vendors will actually put the exact make, model, and version of the router in the probe response. So this WP scan has been known for some time and has been actively used as a means of identifying make, model, and version number of router, which, of course, is very useful for hackers who want to then begin to, to break into routers using any vendor-specific firmware version-specific vulnerabilities that may exist. And then the second tool, WP-SPY, they say, is a tool to simply monitor and report changes in the WPS status of an access point. Um, this is particularly useful if you're running some of our described attacks that leverage WPS to gain access to the WAN. So, I, again, I think over the next few months, we, we will be covering and reporting on ongoing WPS things. And also, of course, there was feedback, as I requested, uh, from the Twitterverse. Anthony Downs in Rockville, Maryland, uh, he sent me a note saying that the Action Tech MI424-WR, which is Verizon Fios's router, claims the WPS functionality is not or will not be enabled with a future firmware release. So Verizon Fios is going to respond by just disabling it you know, by default, which really does sound like the right thing to do. It means that it's not as convenient and easy for users but as we, as we will see next week when we go into this protocol, it really does look like there is no safe way to do this. Um, uh, and someone t uh, tweeted with the Twitter handle of Ludden, L-U-D-D-E-N. He said, SGGRC, I have a new AT&T U-verse modem router, which has WPS disabled by default. So that's good to know any AT&T U-verse users, since this all has, of course, caused a great upheaval of, of concern over WPS. And in fact, not surprisingly, some of the Q&A questions we'll be talking about in detail uh, are asking about some workarounds and things that people are asking whether they would work or not. Philip Hofstetter uh, tweeted from Zurich, Switzerland, said to me that Apple routers do support WPS. You may remember that. Oh, yeah, I was sort of, curious, yeah. Yeah, we left that as an open question. And, in fact, one of our Q&A postings is from somebody who has done a lot of tech support on the Apple side and has some exact specifications. That's weird of, because I, maybe I, I guess I have an old Airport Extreme, but I've never seen a, a the pin code on that, so I don't know. What, what? Uh, I think it's 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 generated dynamically. Ah, it okay. goes on to say they do support WPS, but only while their config tool is open, oh. and you select a special menu entry, and then he says it shows a random pin. So that if that's effective in in protecting against this attack. Yes, it does look like it is. Um, I have not confirmed that WPS is not still broadcasting something, but. But as you say, Leo, they did not print a pin on the outside, so right. there isn't a, a static pin. So that's that, that's certainly good news. And then finally, Ben Natus um, tweeted, 
He said Netgear is protected from pin attack by going into lockout for, quote, predetermined amount of time, unquote. And then he cites uh, the Google chart and he says, note, Netgear recommends putting a check mark on disable routers pin. So um, that's good news. That's good. And then I did get something. It's, it's interesting. I, it's weird that I ran across this in my mailbag today when I was running through everything for the Q&A because a listener, Sasha, in Croatia said, Greetings, I'm super new to your show, not new to your page, having used your Shields Up service way, way, way back when you first made it. Loved your sci-fi podcast show. He said, I started listening slash watching actually your and Leo's show a few months ago and love it. It will take me forever to go through them all. My rant is about your Spinrite page. I hear all the cool stories and testimonials and want to use it so bad, but I can't get what it does exactly. <laughs> I want to use it, but what does it do? <laughs> he says, is it a disk backup tool? Can it be used for that? Is it a disk fix tool, disk format tool, disk defragmenting tool? What exactly does it do? <laughs> That's a, I'm glad I have somebody a, asked that. That's good. He says, I have a complaint about your demo videos where you assume we all know it and simply talk about how good it is instead of actually showing one example even of what it can, he says. So if you can talk more about this, possibly a few minutes on the show, I know people will think it is made up to increase your exposure time, but don't just assume all, he says, we're all listening to security now forever. I guess he means we've all been listening to it forever. Thanks for this, and thanks for everything. You and Leo are awesome. Love you guys, Sasha. So, okay, just a minute on to answer Sasha's question, what this does, um, what Spinrite does. Um, Recently, I've been seeing the term bit rot, and I'm not sure why bit rot has been in the news recently, but there, there, there is a problem that, Hard drive data does degrade over time. We know there's things called so-called grown defects and G-R-O-W-N, that is defects growing over time. And try as they have, and they've done an amazing job, manufacturers are unable to produce absolutely perfect media. And that's become a bigger problem as we've been storing greater densities on these magnetic platters because what it's done is by making the bits smaller, it's effectively made any defects bigger. So in order to deal with the fact that media is not perfect, and it has never been, even back when we were only storing 10 megabytes on disks, all of us in you know who are old school, Leo, you'll certainly remember when there were there were little charts printed on the outside of the disk drives showing the location of defects right. that had been found at the factory. Right. And what what people who were formatting these drives were supposed to do was manually enter the list of defects 
into the <laughs> low-level formatter, wow. which would then mark those sectors as bad. Well, it quickly became clear that that OEMs were not taking the time to do this. They just they were just pumping these systems out, and they weren't, tr- you know, manually entering into a low-level formatter what the defects were. So one of Spinrite's first uses twenty years ago was people would run it on brand new drives, and it would find defects often in sectors they were using, which was a concern. So Spinrite would relocate the data to non-defective sectors, mark those, <laughs> mark those sectors bad, and then keep them from being used. So Spinrite was, was doing the work that should have been done by the OEMs but wasn't being done by the OEMs. So over time, drives evolved. Drives began handling their own defective sectors, meaning that even though they were there were still defects, they would they would manage them themselves. So then Spinrite's job changed. Then by running Spinrite on these drives, it would show the drive that there was a problem that the drive wasn't aware of because the the drive isn't omniscient. It only knows there's a problem if it tries to read the data and has a problem reading it. So, so the way that works is that there's error correction technology, which is able to correct runs of bad bits up to a certain length. That is, you might have, like, you could sort of think of it as a pimple on the surface, but the data only intersects sort of a, an edge of the pimple. So a few bits cannot be stored accurately there because there's just a problem in the media. So the, the drive incorporates technology. It actually stores extra data at the end of the sector, which very cleverly allows it to correct any small problem which it may have encountered in reading the sector. Now, the, the, what can happen over time is just because of the, the head flying over the surface, there is some interaction. There is an air bearing. There is a little bit of mechanical flexing of the, of the surface of the disk. And that can interact with this pimple to make it bigger over time. So while, for example, maybe only four bits had a problem originally that grew the defect grew to 5 or 6 or 7 as this as this problem on the surface grew over time so what happens is again the drive doesn't know there are these growing problems until it reads the sector so one of the things that Spinrite to do, does today, when I, when I talk about it being a preventive maintenance of, of pre- preventative maintenance value, is it simply goes out and reads the entire drive. It also writes it, flipping all the bits upside down, and then reads that, and then flips them back and reads it again. What that does is it sort of exercises the surface. And 
it allows the drive itself to realize, whoa, we have been able to correct a certain spot that was only four bits long in problem, but now it's eight. And say that the drive's maximum ability to correct is 12 bits. Well, at some point, at some threshold, four it might have been comfortable with. It got up to eight, and then it says, oh, you know, this is getting worrisomely close to our maximum ability of, for example, 12 bits to correct. So right now, before it gets any worse, we're going to relocate this sector. It didn't bother when it was just four bits of problem. It bothers when it's eight. So it relocates the sector itself and puts a new good sector in in place. So that's one of the reasons that people say, you know, I've been running Spinrite for years and I've never had a problem, but it it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Well, it's actually doing something. The problem is that it's it's part of the hidden management and maintenance, surface maintenance that drive all drives do today. So there's really nothing I can show. I I can show and do show on on the smart page that sectors are being relocated and that errors are being corrected. That smart analysis page sometimes scares people because it shows, wait a minute, this thing says we're correcting so many errors per megabyte. And it's like, yes, that's the reality of today's drives is they're correcting errors all the time because we've made the bits so small in order to make the density so high that no surfaces are error-free. They've got... They've got errors all over them, but we're just, we're taking them in stride. So one of the things that Spinrite does from a maintenance standpoint is work with the drive to show it it's got problems and induce it to relocate sectors to safety before those problems get too big. But we also hear testimonials all the time of people saying, I was getting blue screens. I could no longer boot. I could no longer run a certain application until I ran Spinrite. So the other thing Spinrite is able to do essentially is beg. (laughs) It just begs for the data because we would like to believe that drives are digital, that they're just ones and zeros, and that's what's being stored. But the fact is, down at the sizes we're dealing with, It's all become analog. And so we're not just storing digital data anymore. We're not really storing digital data. We're storing analog data, which which we reinterpret as digital data. And so Spinrite has a whole um, vocabulary of things it's able to do to, to get a drive To read a sector, it will not read one last time. We just beg. We go out a different distance and come in at a different velocity from from both directions, hoping that that the head will happen to be in a slightly different position where just one last time, instead of it being 13 bits that that are are uncorrectable, it'll be 12. uh, Spinrite has this thing called Dynastat, where, which is a dynamic statistics system where it's a- actually able to reassemble what, what must be in the missing area 
in order for that sector to be corrected, it's able to essentially interpolate the missing data and reverse engineer what was originally there, even though the drive won't read it. So there's all kinds of things that Spinrite can do if we wait too long to use it. Of course, everyone waits too long. They don't, most people aren't buying it for preventive maintenance because, you know, it's not cheap. It's $89, but you own it for life. I'm, I've been keeping it alive for the last 20 decades or two decades. So you can imagine you're, you'll end up being able to amortize that purchase out over time. And there will be a Spinrite 6.1 soon to deal with the evolution, which has occurred since I finished Spinrite 6.0. And that'll be free for everyone to update. So that's what it does. It really can recover data, which the drive tells you it cannot read. Spinrite says, just give it to us one last time. When it does, then the drive says, oh, my God, I'm so happy I was able to read that one last time. It relocates <laughs> that you. data to safety and puts a, a new sector back with the re- recovered data. And then your computer boots again or your applications run or you can access your database or whatever. It's better if you run SpinRide over it every few months or, you know, often enough. No one really knows what that is, but every few months is probably often enough to show it there are problems evolving before they get to the point that you're, you know, holding your breath and crossing your fingers, that SpinRite will bring your data back, which more often than not, it seems able to. So that's the whole story. There's the SpinRite story. <laughs> yeah, somebody said, it, it, this is the nice thing about SpinRite. It eliminates all marketing jargon. Delton <laughs> says, here's what I do. Uh, that's what's great about Steve. Yeah, um, it just works. Yeah. So we're going to take a break. We have questions, a lot of them. It's- Good ones. Good ones from our uh, our wonderful audience. Before we do that, <laughs> even the Ford logo is in black and white. Hey, I, I want to talk a little bit about Ford and their all-electric technologies. I was uh, uh, talking to uh, the CEO of Ford. <laughs> it feels like I'm name-dropping when I say that. I am. I was, talking, <laughs> I was talking to the CEO of Ford at CES last week, and one of the things people were asking him, and I think this is a good question, is how come Ford has been late to the table with electric uh, cars? They just are now coming out. Actually, they've been doing it for a while with their Transit, which is a, uh, a, a delivery vehicle for in town. Uh, but 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 no no you know no major consumer electric car and they're just now releasing the 2012 electric Focus. He said because we have a longer term strategy, our goal is to take our entire product line, retool all the, um, the, the assembly lines so that the same line, whether it's working on F-150 trucks or Focuses or Fusions, can put any drivetrain in there, diesel, gas, electric, hybrid, electric, hybrid, uh, depending on what demand is and what's needed in that region. Ford is a global company, and there are different needs all over. You, what you need in Manhattan is different from what you need in Iowa, from what you need in uh, in Delhi, India, and uh, and and so this is this is, I think, a long term strategy that is going to reap great benefits for Ford's customers. You you know, affordable uh, electric cars, affordable plug in hybrids. The 2012 Ford Focus Electric is almost here. Next year, look for the C Max Energy plug in hybrid. And if you want to know more about these technologies, you can go to Ford's website which is not in black and white, just for today, um, <laughs> Ford.com slash technology, and learn about these cars. I think the, the uh, plug-in hybrid is really interesting. 
because it's basically 100 miles to the gallon. Actually, it could be unlimited depending on how much around town you do. These are really remarkable technologies that Ford is leading the way with. You've got the regenerative braking system, which means that uh, all of the friction and heat generated by brakes actually is not lost, but put right back into the battery. It uses uh, sync with My Ford Touch. You're starting to see how this strategy has worked out really well for them. To uh, maximize range, to plan your your route, uh, the most eco-friendly route will be one of your choices. Manage the recharge process. Precondition the batteries. Remotely control the charge. You could be in the living room. Cars charging in the garage. You could say, for instance, take advantage of off-peak reduced rates from the utility and charge then. It's simply, easily. Just a brilliant, uh, unified ecosystem. And we know that really is the best way to do these kinds of things. Not just do a one-off, but create an ecosystem that supports efficient, eco-friendly vehicles. The smartphone app will even uh, even let you uh, download vehicle data for analysis, program charge settings, access vehicle status. You can you can say, is my vehicle done yet? <laughs> Fantastic. Monitor energy use, all of that. The Ford Focus is an all-electric vehicle. That means zero emissions, 100% electric, full of charges in three to four hours through a 240-volt home charging system. The Leviton uh, charging stations uh, recommended by Ford are available through the dealer. You can charge anywhere, though. You don't have to uh, do it uh, through the um, charger. You could do a 120. I think, the, I think this is just very exciting technologies, and this is what I love about Ford is that they are really focusing on technology. And the difference technology can make in our world. In the in the phones, in the cars. The car is now a 21st century vehicle. Drive one today at a Ford dealer near you and uh, get on the waiting list for the uh, Ford Focus electric reservations are being accepted now. Look at that. Isn't that sweet looking? And the C-Max Energy plug-in hybrid is coming in the fall of next year. Ford.com slash technology. We thank them for their support of Security Now and all of our shows. All right, Steve Gibson, are you ready? Yeah, but let's talk about DNSSEC. Oh, yeah, would you? Because I think that this is germane to uh, what's going on today, the SOPA protests. These bills, uh, SOPA in the House and IP Protect Act or PIPA in the Protect IP Act in the Senate and other bills like it around the world, uh, one, of the, one of the features of them is that they modify DNS. They allow... Um, uh, the government to say, take this uh, website off DNS. Uh, you know, but the presumption being these are pirate sites and we're going to take them down. Well, essentially, what they're, what they're trying to do is to legislate spoofing of DNS. They're, they're wanting ISPs to redirect people to, not, to a different website than their their actual target and how many times in this podcast have we talked about the security problems associated with spoofing dns that's a big problem and what dns sec that is to say dns security does is it 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 signs the dns records so that spoofing can be prevented so it Adds a layer of, I mean, a valuable layer of true security. But Steve, if we can't spoof websites, those pirates will win. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so essentially, what 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 happened was in response to this call for 
you know, D, D, for breaking DNS by by legislatively requiring that DNS be spoofed, the 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 real engineer techies of the internet said, "Wait a minute, we're we've been working now for quite a while to prevent exactly what you're suggesting you're going to require by law, and it breaks the internet security, and and it absolutely does. It would mean." that DNSSEC, that is records, valid records signed, would would not be spoofable. So, so users would have, an, uh, in, in, at some point in the future, when DNSSEC is fully deployed, will, in the same way, I mean, exactly the same way that SSL gives us a, a authentic, connection it not only remember it provides not only security that is to say privacy because it's encrypting our connection it's also authenticating the other end we know that when you connect to grc.com over ssl you know that you're at grc and not that nothing has gotten in the way to spoof your connection because i have a certificate that digicert has has signed and you believe Digicert because your browser has their certificate authority certificate there to verify their signature. So that authentication is is every bit as important as the encryption. Well, we're moving towards an authenticatable DNS, which we do not have today. We don't have it. We're 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 assuming that these DNS records, which propagate from the root servers and 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 their their original origin servers at whichever layer in in the network they are we're assuming that they're correct but there's no encryption they're udp packets that could be intercepted and changed and and all there is in there is an ip but the records themselves have have no protection no i mean they have a checksum but you could you know, you just rebalance the checksum if you change the contents of the records. Yeah, we know so how that, how the, that works. The, <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, the entire DNS system is in the clear right now with no protection. So, so what we're moving towards is providing for the first time the ability to cryptographically sign and verify that the DNS record that arrives at our computer is the one that the owning dns server sent and that the technology will absolutely prevent that from being tampered with yet what this legislation would do would be to break what we're heading towards right. and and you know just arbitrarily say oh you asked for this url we're taking we're going to give you a different ip to redirect you to a page that says, we're sorry, uh, services have been suspended because that site is believed to be a pirate site. And that breaks DNS. Well, there you have it. If you needed another reason to not like this. Actually, it segues right into our first question of the day from Robert Van Etta in uh, the United Kingdom. I just wanted to point out how seemingly small changes by commercial organizations have broken the Internet in the past. 
Remember this? And uh, we talked about it in 2003. Yep. VeriSign introduced something they called Site Finder. Instead of simply re- returning a host not found type response, VeriSign used wildcards on the .com and .net TLDs to direct users to their own servers. So if you entered a uh, mistyped something, it would go back to a VeriSign server, and they, of course, would give you an ad. <laughs> In effect, they give you search results. Yeah, they were and trying ad. to monetize your mistakes. Right. Needless to say, this broke several services that relied on receiving proper DNS responses like 404s or 503s. And just like the response to SOPA, there was significant public outcry. In fact, VeriSign backed down. So they keep trying to do this kind of crap for whatever reason. Moving on, Robert Callahan, Prescott, Arizona, with a WPS question. My router has two modes for WPS, the pin mode and the push button mode. The push button mode has a two-minute window before it shuts down. Is this second mode secure? Okay. Um, it's way more secure. Oh, I uh, was going to say no. Well, it, it's way more secure because it only it is a, a different four-digit pin every time. Ah. Um, and... And, and I guess he didn't say that. He says a, a push button with a two-minute window before it shuts down. Um, the push button mode is normally a four is is a four-digit pin, which is which is different every time it's used. So uh, and it only lasts for two minutes. So you know that mode is more secure. But as we know, the 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 standard eight-digit pin mode is not secure. Um, both in the mailbag that I encountered and also some of our uh, top-notch uh, cryptographic security guys who hang out over the GRC news group, they did some math. And it was interesting to see what happens just with anything that's four digits. Four digits is, as we know, gives you from 0000 to 9999. So that's 10,000 possibilities. Well, so a single guess has a one in a single random guess has a one in 10,000 chance of succeeding. It is surprising how quickly the probability of guessing once right goes up as you get more guesses, which is to say that even in the eight digit case where you're trying to guess the first four digits um and and not guessing correctly um it's it's surprising if you're able to guess at even a a rate of a couple a minute how how quickly the chances of one right guess are the 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 takeaway from this is four digits is just not enough one in ten thousand is not enough if if someone is going to be allowed to, to guess um, in, in any for, for any length of time, and as you say, this is not hypothetical. The tools right. are, the tools are out there, right? And uh, and they're coming. We're and how fast does Reaver work? Half an hour? Um, like two to ten hours. Okay. So so not super fast, but you know, two hours is it, it's a matter of of whether it gets lucky or not, and well, a little bit of a function of how quick the um, how quickly the access point, right. yes, how, how, how quickly it recovers from a mistake. That's why a timeout is a good thing. It slows right. it way down. 
but your neighbor has all the time in the world to crack into you. <laughs> that, that's the that's it's the static threats that are right. the problem right. and targeted threats. You know, pe people may believe. I mean, you could have a high value Wi-Fi access point that is protected with the a you know a user key from hell. Like, you know, I have on mine. I can't enter it into any of my phones because I can't possibly type it. Actually, that's changed after the password haystack revelation. But still, you know, it's the point is you could never brute force that. Yet you could have WPS enabled and probably do. And somebody who, you know, had a reason to get into your network parked out in front of your business, for example. Hey, they've got two to ten hours, especially you know, on the weekend or in, in at night. So I, we may have covered this, but Brian in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, fills in the details of the uh, uh, WPS implementation on airport devices from Apple. I was enjoying the podcast on WPS, found the information very helpful, a bit scary. I admit I've always disliked the op option of using WPS. I even tell our customers at our store to avoid using it, opting instead to promote a correctly secured network, even if that means going over to the house and setting it up for them. Your closing thoughts were on Apple Airport and uh, the question which we had in our mind of whether it supports WPS. It does and has since WPS first came out. Its implementation is a bit different, though, as the base station requires that you tell it to accept a new connection from the airport utility in Windows or on a Mac and not with just a button press. So if your neighbor's trying to break into your airport, he's got to wait until you say to the airport, okay, let's, let's do this thing. Which, uh, if you've already set it up, you probably never will do. So here's how you do it. It, it, it. You go into the airport utility. You pick the base station you'd like to have your device join. Then from the base station menu, you pick Add Wireless Clients. Your next choice is to connect by PIN or first attempt. If you choose a PIN, you enter the PIN of a device connecting as the Apple base station does not have a printed PIN. When you choose first attempt, you are then given a screen that shows you the description and MAC address of the device that's trying to connect which means you can reject the connection if the bad guy was nearby just waiting for you to say, turn it on. Lastly, for both, both options, you can add a restriction of limiting the access to a 24-hour time limit. So this is actually kind of handy if uh, a neighbor comes over, a friend comes over, wants to get on. You can set it up very quickly, but you yep. can have it automatically turn off in 24 hours. I prefer this idea, as no matter how much someone was to knock on the door of the network, only I can say, come in. Thanks for the great podcast, Brian. That does seem like that, a, a better way of implementing it. Apple just did it right. They really did. I mean, yeah. the other aspect of this is that, that people have commented on is that if someone came over and you wanted to let them get on your network right. that time and you had a static pin on your router, well, they know your eight-digit pin now. Right. For, exactly. Forever. So they could get on even if you didn't want them to, to get on at, at some point in the future. In fact, that's what, I, that's what I do with my uh, relatives when they come over. I give them the WPA key. And in yeah. fact, uh, when you come to our brick house and you want to join our Wi-Fi network, we have a guest network, we give you the WPA key. So unless we change that on a regular basis, you have now access forever. Right. Ofer Bannery, who is a regular correspondent to the Daily Gizwiz, He's from ah. Burbank, helps us to recall when lights once flashed. <laughs> Steve, I'd enjoyed security now since number one. Hope you and Leo go on for another 20 to 30 years. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the flashing lights on the panels behind you. That reminded me of a planned corporate video about our data center. Since I was the sysadmin, 
HR, who wanted the video to show new employees, sent me the script for review and comments. So here are some excerpts from the script and my comments. I don't have it on here, though. Did I do something wrong? Oh, it's in page two. Page two. <laughs> By the way, Ofer is a happy Spinrite owner. That's nice. Da, 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 da. Scroll. I'm just having the worst trouble today. It's a PDF uh, reader that's just giving me fits. Zoom. Okay, so script uh, item one. Zoom in on flashing lights. Our system has one flashing light. It tells the operator the system crashed. We hope never to see it flashing. <laughs> uh, script command two. Show spinning tape reels. Our tape drive is behind opaque doors, so no reels are visible. Request three, show rapid motion of disk drive heads. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> Our disk drives are sealed and no motion can be detected. Show tracking high-speed printer. Our high-speed laser printer doesn't have a print head. Um, you could show the paper coming out, but it looks just like a photocopier. <laughs> Here's my favorite. Show punch card in action. We haven't had a card punch for at least 20 years, maybe 30, in fact. Needless to say, the video was never produced. Oh, how computers have changed. Oh, for Bannery, Burbank, California, happy spin right owner. So those, those blinking lights behind Steve go back to the punch, almost to the punch card era. Yeah, and today they're in black and white, even. Yeah, they look like, um, they, they, look like they belong there. I got a kick out of, uh, of his post and this script that, that HR so said funny. they wanted for their video because... It reminded me, you know, computers used to be physical. Right. They, you know, they took a lot of space. You were in their presence. You, you know, and like, uh, you know, stuff was happening, you know, happening. I mean, you know, all of the classic, you know, sci-fi movies with the reels of, right. you know, spitting back and forth right. and, and banks of lights. That's where flashing. all these shots came from, by the way, sci-fi. That's where every yeah. one of them, yeah. Including yeah, the I hard just, drive you know, heads. <laughs> and, I, and I loved, he says, you know, show the high-speed printer running. He says, well, just kind of looks, looks like, like a photocopier. And it's like, it's true. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I guess I feel a little bit the way people probably who were car enthusiasts used to feel. Right. Because it's been taken away from us. Yeah. Now it's just all in a black box. Solid state. And, you know, algorithms are really interesting. We're going to be discussing a really interesting set of algorithms next week. I'm, I'm actually working on a really interesting algorithm myself at the moment um, that I'll probably talk about in the future. Uh, an interesting challenge of finding the longest repeating strings in a large corpus, which I'm using to eliminate duplicates from the Spinrite testimonials database. But, <laughs> Clever. Uh, yeah, it's because I don't want to have any duplicates. And, <laughs> and, um, and the way to do it is to find strings that are long and and repeated with you know within a large text which turns out to be very difficult um but you know it just it's it's just changed now we just don't have that you're not in the physical presence of a computer it's like yeah yeah you know there's my phone it's my ipad it's my whatever it's just it's such so a different. good point it really has it really has and yeah. there are computers embedded everywhere that you don't even see Right. Um, yeah, the physical nature of it. Those lights are PDP-8 lights on the front panel of uh, Steve's kit PDP-8, which we've described before. Question five, Paul Brown and Ham Richmond. He actually sent this via Twitter, so it's nice and short. His uh, Twitter handle is at Brownmeister. 
Uh, in security now, you mentioned you have a four-disc RAID 6. Wouldn't it be better to use RAID 1-0 as it's three times faster at writes? Why do you use RAID 6, Steve? Um, many people picked up on that, so I just wanted to comment. And others said, well, use RAID 10. RAID 10, as the as the digits look, is actually a combination of 1 and 0. Um, you know, those are the zero and one are the lowest level of raid architecture um uh zero is just striping where you you span two drives and one is mirroring where you record the same thing on two drives so raid 10 which is what a number of people suggested and probably what paul actually meant is um is both you're you're spanning drives for size and then mirroring that span onto another pair for redundancy. So you end up with twice the amount of storage of the of a size of a single drive. What RAID 6 does is given any number of drives, rather than you having a single parity drive, with which is what RAID 5 gives you, you have two parity drives, which is RAID 6. And so what this means in practice is that any two drives could fail or, or, or actually more, more properly stated, the same spot on any two drives could be unreadable and you still recover the data despite that. So what that the benefit of that for example over raid 10 is it if if a particular two spots died on either of two drives you're in trouble. So raid 6 gives you the same amount of storage that is you end up with two in my case with a four disk raid 6 I end up with twice the storage of a single drive but double redundancy, not just redundancy where any spot can be read, can, can be figured out from the other, from the remaining drives, but any two of the same area anywhere in all the drives could die and I still get it. So it's just more redundancy. There's a little more overhead and people have commented that computing the the parity takes time i'm using a, a very fast physical hardware raid controller so and that and it's got a big buffer that i'm using with battery backup and it's a write back cache so i only have to i only have to write to the physical media if the data in the cache is about to be overwritten then it writes that back to the drive so data which is changing often stays in the cache and never even gets written to the drive. So it's, it's very fast because it's got a big cache, um, megabytes. Uh, I think it's maybe 8 or 16 megs of cache. It's a, a, lots of cache, maybe even more. I've forgotten now. Um, and, uh, and so I don't, I don't see much write time, but a web server is doing much more reading than writing. And in fact, my whole website lives in RAM because wow. remember yeah it does. The the actual 
I, I looked the other day after you and I talked about it, Leo. I have less than 10 gigs for the entire partition. I mean, the, the, the partition itself is 10 gigs. I'm using four for the data storage of the server, including the web server and the entire site. That's so that's, it's, that's how lean GRZ is. GRZ ends up loading up into RAM, and then it's just being served out of the cache during the day. So you don't have a lot of pictures on GRC. Don't have a lot. No. no. Yeah. And and actually the media is on a separate is on a separate partition and that's you know for example all of the the 16 megabit um 16 kilobit versions of the of the podcast are all on a are not in that same partition. So anyway, RAID 6 is just you know for someone who really never ever ever wants to think about their system. I did an actual reboot of the server a week and a half ago because there was something funky going on with our e-commerce and I wanted to make sure that it was them and not us, I hadn't rebooted for years. Mm. That thing is so stable, I never reboot it. And I looked at the uptime and it's like, oh, okay, well, it'd probably be good to do it just to dust it off a little bit. So, yeah, 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 very stable. (laughs) Reboot once in a while, (laughs) once every decade. Not a bad idea to reboot. Uh, Isaac Hanna... He's also on Twitter, at Isaac C.R. Hanna. No, no, Isaac R. Hanna in Melbourne, Australia. Tweeted, any chance you could offer more info on the problem with full disk encryption and SSDs? This is actually a great question uh, that you and I uh, emailed about some months ago because somebody asked about it. And we ended up getting Alan Malventano on the line. It's very interesting. And also the issue of deleting uh, stuff on SSDs. TrueCrypt points out that any device that implements wear leveling which an SSD does, is vulnerable to attack. You can see that on the TrueCrypt site. So uh, can we do full disk encryption on SSDs? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and there's no reason not to. Um, the concern is, and this is what the TrueCrypt site mentions, is that if you add full disk encryption after you have already recorded sensitive data you you cannot absolutely know that the sensitive data wasn't spared out due to wear leveling and not overwritten so it's very much like the sector sparing i talked about a minute ago with Spinrite, where Spinrite sees a sector having problems, it'll take it out of use and swap in a different one. Well, that un that out of use sector is still physically there. The good news is it's probably hard to read, so that would slow the bad guys down who are trying to, or the NSA or the CIA or whatever IA. Um, <laughs> um, so um, the problem is worse with SSDs because. There, they may be deliberately remapping on the fly, not just bad areas, but where leveling deliberately tries not to write to the same spot over and over and over. So TrueCrypt will will read a, a chunk of plain text, which is not encrypted, run its encryption algorithm, and write it back to what is logically 
the place it just got it from. But where leveling may, may intercept that so that it's written to physically a different location. So what you encrypted will be read back encrypted, except that it didn't overwrite the plain text of it. So the, so the, the lesson is, if, you, if you're really concerned about the safety of SSD-based TrueCrypt-style full-drive encryption, install TrueCrypt before first use. That is to say, as long as you put TrueCrypt on a blank drive, then dump all your valuables on, you're fine. But adding it when you've already got sensitive data on the SSD, that's where the concern is. How interesting. Because you, you can't know that the, you cannot know, where leveling prevents you from knowing right. that you, that you, actually overwrote the sensitive data with its encrypted version. So you really can't put TrueCrypt on a drive you've been using. You really can't. Not not and and have absolute knowledge that all of the sensitive data has been has been overwritten with crypt encrypted data. Isn't that interesting? Huh. Yeah. Question 7 from Joseph in Los Angeles wonders about WPS and MAC address. Uh, filtering. I've finished listening to the WPS podcast, as usual. Great job of exercising my brain while I exercise my butt at the gym. Of course, my Linksys router has the WPS button and no way to disable it. But since I trust no one, I had configured the router to allow only whitelisted uh, Mac address, Wi-Fi Mac addresses to access the router because I was concerned that WPA would be one day hacked. It's amazing this stuff persists. Do you think that whitelisting MAC addresses is enough to make my Wi-Fi router WPS hack-proof until the firmware is updated? I'd also be very curious whether the WPS spec automatically whitelists MAC addresses for convenience as well. Thanks again, Joseph. So the WPS spec does not address MAC addresses at all. And unfortunately, MAC address whitelisting is not safe ever safe actually never did anything no it just the annoys thing, people well the only thing it was useful for is if you wanted to prevent mistaken use of your access point or casual snoops people who yes. didn't have any skills with and for whatever reason you did not want to use encryption so if you wanted to have a d a non-encrypted access point but didn't want someone, you know, using your access point by mistake, then MAC address filtering would prevent the access point from using the traffic. It doesn't prevent bad guys because the MAC addresses are in the air. They're never encrypted, even if you've got encryption on your, on your network, the MAC address it's it's the way the packets get from point A to point B because we're talking about wireless Ethernet. And so MAC addresses are Ethernet addressing. They cannot be encrypted. They have to be – essentially, they're the outer envelope. They're the addressing of the packet. The packet's contents, the envelope's contents can be encrypted, 
the outside can't, which means that a determined hacker could simply watch your your wireless network traffic, see the Wi-Fi, the, the MAC addresses which are being accepted by your access point, and then clone the MAC address for their own use, and it too would be accepted by your access point. It's just amazing how... Um this MAC address filtering will not die. There's still a guy in the chat who says, well, it's a useful uh, tool. And it's not. It's not. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> not a useful tool. The only, yeah, it's useful in this weird situation Steve mentioned where if you don't want somebody accidentally to use your unencrypted Wi-Fi, I guess it might slow them down. The only, the only thing I can think it's really useful for. <laughs> it's not for. useful, in other words. And it's such a pain because you have to register MAC addresses. Oh. And it's, yes, it's, and, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're, um, a bunch of hex characters, which is you know not easy to type, and you got to figure out what your MAC address is, and as you said, Leo, manually enter it or 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 grab it from the table, and then you know allow it to continue being used. Yeah, it's just a mess. So I'll say it again because you said it, but I'm gonna say it again because it doesn't sink in. Doesn't do nothing. <laughs> the MAC address is floating through the air all the time, unencrypted, no matter what. Easy to capture, easy to spoof. It's it, yep. You can do it yourself in your own router. You see you'll have a setting that says, what MAC address would you like to be using today? Steve McDonald in, Stephen McDonald in Scotland comments on today's JavaScript blocking value. Uh, uh, don't know if you know, but Wikipedia shut its doors a short time ago to protest the USA SOAP. Of course, we are as well. Well, we're not shut. We're just black and white. You go to any article and you're redirected to a dark page. That is, of course, unless you're a Security Now listener and you've disabled JavaScript. <laughs> I'm browsing Wikipedia right now. Page only redirects if you have JavaScript enabled. Well, I guess if you're smart enough to be running no script, you probably don't need to be informed about the bad idea that is SOPA and PIPA. Precisely. Precisely. So if you've got scripting disabled, you're probably already clued in yeah. to the to the fundamental problems that this day is dedicated to educating people about. If you, if you do have JavaScript turned on, that's what you will see. Imagine a world without free knowledge for over a decade. We have spent millions of hours building the largest encyclopedia in human history. Right now, the U.S. Congress is considering legislation that could fatally damage the free and open internet for 24 hours to raise awareness. We're blacking out Wikipedia. Then they ask you to enter your zip code, and uh, it will look up your Congress critter and give you a phone number. Best thing to do, call that number and uh, and say, hey, don't pass, don't vote for SOPA or PIPA or anything like it. Um, watch, I got my eyes on you. If you pass it, you lost my vote. And members of Congress, are, uh, of the House anyway, are all up for uh, re-election uh, this year. And a third of the Senate's up for re-election. So that should actually have... Be polite. Be nice. Just say, I want you to know, I will not vote for anyone who doesn't protect the free and open Internet. Simple. I like this. So but it, doesn't, it doesn't work with JavaScript off. Uh, well, that's, you know, probably, that's probably their intent, right? I would think so. Because you, you see it briefly, then the black page comes up. Right. And they could certainly have done it differently. So, you know, it, to me, it does seem like it's sort of a soft shutdown. They could have just done, you know, 
just redirected anything to a page and you would have never been able to go any further. So, yeah. and I'm, I'm thankful I used it already this morning. You know, so. it really is dramatic. I think of all the sites that could go dark, that is the most dramatically um, effective. Yep. Because we do, we use it. And by the way, oh. I hope people donated when they were asking for money. Um, it's not too late. You can always donate. I donate every year a considerable amount of money to Wikipedia because it is the single most useful thing on the Internet. If you had to pick one yep. thing. Uh, just fantastic. By the way, uh, NoScript also works to remove the black and white and make this show in color. Just in case you want to try that. <laughs> Andrew Mason. Andrew Mason in Adelaide, Australia, was slightly disappointed in you, Steve. Oh. Steve, a few episodes ago, someone asked a question about your assembly code being open source. And I was slightly disappointed in your response as it failed to mention open source isn't really about the visibility of the source code. You know, that's actually a good point. I mean, it's part of it, but it's not the only yep. part of it. It's about He's the absolutely. license. Yep. Just because I can read your source code doesn't mean I'm allowed to do anything with it. Open source licenses list a set of rights that go along and responsibilities that go along with that source code. Thanks for a great show, Andrew. Good point, Andrew. So, yes, and that's why he made it here into the Q&A, was I wanted to, to let people know that um, I'd forgotten to mention that, and he's absolutely right. You know, I have deliberately opened, licensed a bunch of stuff, you know, the the uh, perfect paper passwords technology, the algorithms and all that's open, the ultra high entropy random number generator that I developed for the off the grid system, uh, all the JavaScript is there and explicitly open and the off the grid system itself, the architecture, the technology, all of that is is open. So, you know, when it makes sense for me to give stuff away, I'm more than happy to do that. Most of my things, I just does, sort of doesn't make sense. I mean, and there is a security side. I mean, I didn't open source, for example, the DNS benchmarking tool because it would make it e really easy for bad guys to create evil versions of it that looks just like mine and that could fool users into using it. So although it's weak protection, it just, you know, it just makes more sense to to keep those things which are utilities, which are you know, used on the surface, just, you know, as they are. I, I you know I'm not an op open source publisher, but I'm certainly an open concept publisher. And, 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 and conversely, everything I wrote uh, when I was writing software 20 years ago, I uh, gave away the source code to, but there weren't open source licenses at the time. <laughs> so um, this was 1986, I think. So um, I just public domained it, which isn't the same at all. Um, but I did give away source code. So that's not technically, you know, really open source. Uh, you want to use GPL or the Apache license, or there are lots of open source licenses. Um, right. And that, that, that or off Creative Commons. Creative Commons is a kind of open source license. Yeah, that's a very, I, everything we do is Creative Commons. Right. So, for instance, if you decided to take these shows and hand color them and re release them, you could do that. In fact, I hope somebody does. <laughs> We're black and white to protest, so obviously. Be kind. If you, if you hand color them, be kind. <laughs> Make me bright red. Uh, just look at the bug in the uh, lower uh, right-hand corner, and you'll see a website you can go to to find out more, americancensorship.org. Question 10, Mark White in London wonders, seriously, whether governments can break our crypto. This has always been the, uh, the question. You know, what, what can those three-letter agencies get up to? Uh, Steve, I recently had a discussion with a friend of mine regarding security and crypto services that are available. My assertion was that by using such a, something like TrueCrypt with a 256-bit AES encryption to encrypt a hard drive 
or to create an encrypted container with a sufficiently long passphrase using, you know, combination of upper lowercase letters, digits, punctuation. It would be impossible for anyone to open via brute force. Furthermore, the open nature of TrueCrypt and the AES encryption cipher ensures that there are no back doors for anyone to surreptitiously get access. My friend takes the view that governments simply would not have allowed TrueCrypt or other software to exist without ensuring that there's a way to break the cipher and access the encrypted data. His reasoning comes from his own military experience, whereby he had first experience with some very advanced, first-hand experience with some very advanced technologies. While he wouldn't tell me what those technologies were, he did think that government departments like the NSA in the U.S., MI6 in the U.K., will easily be able to access encrypted data as the alternative would represent too much of a security risk. We came up with the following thought experiment. The NSA has a securely encrypted hard drive with a priority one order to get access to the data it contains as a matter of worldwide security. Assuming there's no access to anyone who might have the encryption key, is there any way for the NSA to access the data? After listening to several years of security now, I simply do not think this is possible. Am I being too trusting of the software, or is it a safe bet that governments around the world could break into our encrypted files? I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Thank you for all your hard work on security now for a great tool in Spinrite and all the great free services at grc.com. Keep up the great work. Mark in London. There's only one error in his... Um, in his thought experiment, he says that if he uses a sufficiently secure password, it would be impossible for anyone to open it via brute force. And that is not what encryption says. True. And so impossible is wrong, but the idea would be it would take an infeasibly long time is is the way to he that, to, to correct that one mistake, but there's something else, and so so this is a great question. Um, we have seen on this podcast that things tools like two fifty six bit AES are almost certainly absolutely secure. That is, we know how they work. Everyone's been pounding on it. We understand that. I mean, it's a simple bit scrambling that you do enough. We've seen reduced round versions of it where we can sort of see, we get a sense for how quickly it gets soft as we do fewer rounds, which tells us how much extra strength we have with the number of rounds we are doing. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's just like, that's just so clear. It's it seems absolutely um, verifiably secure, but the way it's used may not be, and that's the key lesson. The as we will see next week, there is a problem that we know about with WPS. There's nothing wrong with the underlying crypto, with the hashes, with the, with, with the secure key exchange mechanisms. It was the protocol which they built on top of those absolutely bulletproof crypto technologies. It clearly had a problem and the implementation. We, we saw that, that routers are not going, they're not going dark 
either at all or often for a long enough period to to practically prevent brute forcing. So there was an implementation error on in at one level. There was also apparently a protocol error that we'll be looking at next week or protocol issues. So in the case of TrueCrypt, just the fact that it is open and and has been seen and looked at by a lot of people, even that doesn't mean a mistake hasn't been made. Beast that we talked about earlier is another example. There is a something that um, it was a block encryption protocol in SSL where if you could if you could finesse some of the way it worked, you could leverage a weakness in the protocol. So again, nothing wrong with the underlying crypto, but a but you have to be so, so careful with the way you use it. And and the true crypt guys, I'm sure, have been. And we know that law enforcement is being frustrated constantly now by true crypt encrypted drives. Certainly there is nothing in, in out in common knowledge that that allows someone to get into TrueCrypt. If there were, it would be fixed immediately. So could could the NSA know something about TrueCrypt we don't? Could you know I mean anything's possible, but it's but it's not the crypto that's being broken. So Mark's original question wondering seriously whether governments can break our crypto. I would have to say no. You know, they're not happy. You know, you know, he says, you know, he says, my friend takes the view that governments would have simply not allowed software such as true, true crypt to exist. They don't have any control over that. They're not happy about that either. You know, the MPAA doesn't have any control over <laughs> digital content once it gets out of their trying. vault. Chris Dodds you right know? now on CNN, and, uh, CNN, of course. Remember, CNN is owned by Time Warner. You ever hear Warner Brothers? And... Uh, <laughs> They're naturally giving the MPAA lots of time to explain why the the SOPA bills protect jobs in Hollywood, oh, which is boy. unmitigated garbage. Yep. Just yep. sad to see that. Uh, and I'll be curious to see if they have anybody on to rebut him. Um, so, you know, you, I'm going to give you some conspiracy so, theories. You ready? Okay. Yep. You can shoot them down if you choose. First of all, it is why I always say use open source crypto. I, I don't like closed source crypto because you can't tell if the government has put a back door in it. Uh, we're presuming TrueCrypt because it's completely open source. You can compile from source. You know what you've got. Uh, we're presuming that smart people are looking at that. I'm not smart enough to know, but smart people are looking at it for back doors. Uh, so let's presume that that's effective. That's not the conspiracy theory. Here's a couple, though. One, all of this is based on number theory, the, 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 the simple theory that it is much more difficult to factor a, a large prime number than it is to create, right? Well, pub, public key technology is, but TrueCrypt does not use public well, that's key right. technology. All right. But let's, well, we'll use public key as an example. It is possible okay. that yep. some mathematical genius has in secret yes. figured out a way yep. to factor large primes. Yes, we, we know, you're right, we know that... If that breakthrough occurs, 
we the the world ends. <laughs> and maybe he works for the CIA and they're keeping it secret. That's yep. uh, that's conspiracy theory number one. Conspiracy theory number two is that there are such fast machines at the NSA, and this I think is a given that they are building the fastest machines money unlimited federal funds can buy. It's the only thing they can do, and that maybe they have machines that are so fast that this unfeasible to crack is has been you know downgraded to difficult to crack. Yeah, they may have quantum computers. We don't know. Are- that are running that just sort of you hand the problem to it and, and the quantum computer says, is that all you got? Come yeah. on. And then hand <laughs> yeah. you back the answer. Right. So on. those are the conspiracy theories. But barring those, I think we can feel fairly secure uh, uh, that, you know, and, and, and by the way, they would have to devote significant resources. So unless you're uh, unless you are, in fact, planning to blow up the world, you're probably OK. No one to rebut Chris Dodd on CNN. What a surprise. Mm. Time Warner owns CNN. They make movies. What a surprise. Uh, You will see much more about SOPA, PIPA, and the attempt to break the Internet uh, that is currently being proposed in the U.S. and around the world. That's very important. Uh, We are going to have more coverage uh, to come on TWIG, on TNT, and Triangulation will be entirely devoted to that. Trevor Tim from the EFF is going to join us in a little bit. Mark Fraunfelder and Rob Biskiza from Boing Boing. Uh, Wikipedia is dark, Reddit is dark, Tumblr is dark, and we are black and white um, so that we can continue to give you information but remind you that we are not safe and you should visit americancensorship.org and most importantly, today would be a very good day to call your rep- elected officials, whether you're in the U.S. or outside the U.S., and tell them we will we will tolerate no attempt to break the internet to protect these old business models. It's not going to. The internet is making jobs, not costing jobs, yep. in Hollywood and everywhere else. Well, and you know, jobs too. I'm tired of hearing about hearing. You know, everyone's talking about oh, the job killing bill and the job killing this and the job. You know, it's because we have high unemployment right now. Jobs is the buzzword for everything, and you know, it's getting overused. Well, you want more jobs for filmmakers, actors, and writers? The internet. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Hello. If it's if 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 SOPA passes, there's no twit. That's twenty jobs down the tube, including me and you. Yeah. John J. Jobston, Columbia, Illinois, comments on the WPS flaw and possible workarounds. Steve, thanks for a highly informative podcast and the latest cyber threat. There are a number of threads on the Cis- I bet there are on the Cisco <laughs> Links community support forums talking about the WPS flaw, and naturally, no official word from Cisco. Oh my. Huh. Most of the advice falls into two camps. Don't worry. <laughs> what are you going to say? Don't panic. Your chances of someone wanting to hack your router are extremely slim. That's eh, true. Yeah. Or switch to an open source solution like Tomato or DDWRT, neither of which support WPS. One interesting workaround mentions if you use WPA2 Enterprise, which we tell everybody to use, you're safe. But good luck to the typical home network owner setting up a Radius server. I've been an enterprise network administrator for years, and I'm sure I could easily implement any of these solutions. But since there are only three houses near enough to me to be uh, barely in range of my Wi-Fi router, I'm going to be just doing nothing. I will look at my logs periodically to see if there are any stray clients. Uh, 
If I find one, I'll mention the FBI and federal anti-hacking statutes to my neighbor. <laughs> Which should be enough to make it stop. Oh, by the way. <laughs> Even if I were in an apartment complex with lots of Wi-Fi-enabled neighbors, I wonder how big the threat really is. Are there any statistics out there to say how often the WPS flaw is being exploited? Good question. P.S. My wife is usually in the room or in the car when I listen to Security Now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Last mm-hmm. week she asked me if I have that spin thing. And if I could fix her computer, I told her, hey, I bought Spinrite a long time ago, and it fixed her unbootable computer about three years ago. Unfortunately, her current problem is a defective wireless keyboard. Spinrite, I don't think, works on that. Keep up the good work. No, can't do anything about the keyboard. And, and yes, I, I like this. I wanted to put it in just to sort of tell people, yeah, I, I think our listeners probably have a good sense for if you... If you have a, uh, something which at the moment is Linux only and it takes two to ten hours um, it, in order to get onto someone's network, you know, You're I not wouldn't a high worry about it target. that much. Yeah. The, 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 the big problem is that it's in all routers made in the last few years and it's enabled by default and it's not going to go away. Routers, I, I, I had the interesting thought, Leo, that router firmware is not self-upgradable the way virtually all of our other mainstream computer devices are now. Windows and, got, we, as we know, Google Chrome, it's just, you know, it updates itself constantly. Our phones, our pads, our tablets, our, I mean, everything, we're now in this sort of autonomous update mode conspicuously routers don't so it's not possible for netgear just to push out or for all netgear routers to be like checking in to see if there's um any new firmware for them and we're probably to the point where you know as this demonstrates it would sure be nice if it would be possible for our router manufacturers to essentially push out a fix by making something available and have their routers checking in to see if there's an update and make it trivial for for users to do that. But routers are typically, you know, they run without a UI most of the time. So it's not clear how that would work, but it should be nice. The problem is we're stuck with an industry full of of established routers that have this vulnerability and it's just not going to go away anytime soon. Um, Is he right when he says WPA2 Enterprise is uh, not... Liable? Uh, Vulnerable? Good question. Whether I guess whether if you used a radius server to do it, you'd probably be all right. Yeah, you're probably up at a different level where you don't have, con- you know, the consumer. You just don't have WPS. That's the – Right. <laughs> if you're doing that, if you're – not if, there. <laughs> no, no WPS with a radius. Um, yeah, I mean, I, kind of, I, I think that's a really important uh, because we often, uh, I think, imply that this is a huge security issue. You were on the radio show both Saturday and Sunday to warn people about this. It, uh, it, and it may, it may become a bigger and bigger security issue as tools come out. Um, well, there's no doubt we're going to get tools. Yeah. This is not going away. Right. Dan, our final question. Dan, in the U.S. of A, wonders about audio to text conversion. I love your site. I listen often. I was just wondering, how do you create the text 
transcript of the audio-based show. Steve offers a text uh, file with each and every show at his site, grc.com. He says, do you use a free or commercial product to automatically type out a text form of your podcast, or does someone hand type it in? Thanks. And her name is Elaine. Yes. She's not a robot. No, she's not. She's human. Um, yep. She's very human. She's very good. I stumbled on her. Just I put, I Googled something like audio transcription or something. Right. And on-site media is her company. And it came up and there may have been some others, but she had a little form you could fill in to like get a, like request a quote. And I thought, well, okay. And so I did. I sort of liked that she was technically savvy enough to have a site like that. And boy, what a win. Um, it's, uh, I recommended her when people ask for transcripts. Uh, it's not, she's not inexpensive. Apparently there are, you know, send your audio off to China or, or India or something places, but you get what you pay for. And I really care about quality. Elaine is actively using Wikipedia and Google and the net as she's transcribing the podcasts, tracking down the spelling and the location of things and making sure that she's got it exactly right. So, I mean, these are perfect transcriptions. So I just wanted to, to give her a little shout out to let our listeners know that uh, there is a, a, a terrific service that uh, if you've got an audio that you need transcribed, um, there's just none better. Well, and that's one of the reasons uh, I really appreciate you, Steve, because you make a lot of extra effort on, on this show. Uh, not only do you put a lot of work into prepping it, but you uh, make 16 kilobit versions available on your own dime and uh, on your own time uh, on your website. You also make those transcriptions available. You pay Elaine, so we really uh, are very grateful. I know you consider this a significant public service, and you, you really put your money where your mouth is. So thank you, Steve. I do appreciate that. You can find those 16 kilobit versions and transcriptions at grc.com. That's a good place to ask questions, too. There's a feedback form. That's the way to do it. Don't email Steve. Uh, go to grc.com slash feedback and leave the question there. He can't guarantee a personal response, but uh, the questions that get asked the most by the most people are, are often answered in these uh, Q&A episodes, yep. which we do every other uh, show. Next week, we will... Uh, Talk more about, uh, is it, it what, the what is WPS this? protocol? How, yeah, okay. And it's the way, the idea is, how do you, it's they're called zero knowledge proofs. And if Wikipedia weren't dark right now, you <laughs> could, you could go find out what that is. Very <laughs> interesting problem in computer science where you want to prove to somebody that you know something without revealing anything about what it is. Hmm. So you give away no knowledge, yet you prove you know it. I know nothing. Yeah, and we, but you will in a week, Leo. <laughs> I can't wait. GRC.com, the place to go for SpinRite as well, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. There, that's it. That's all you need to know. World's best ma hard drive maintenance and recovery uh, utility. Steve, thank you for letting us do this show in black and white this this uh, week in order to, uh, again, underscore the risks posed to a free and open Internet by legislation, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, designed to protect content creators against piracy. It would do, would not do that 
In fact, pirates are never thwarted by these kinds of efforts, but it would break the Internet. Right. And that's the other thing we forgot to mention, Leo. It wouldn't work anyway. We talked about blacklisting. This is blacklisting. If blacklisting worked, there would be no spam because yeah. we would have blacklisted the spammers Oops. and that would have been the end of it. Yeah. So, so there. It, I mean, it doesn't even work. <laughs> look how look how spam free we all are now, thanks to the blacklists. <laughs> exactly. And everybody knows. I hope you know. We've talked about it enough. That blacklists inevitably uh, punish legitimate yep. sites like mine. Yeah. And so it would, in fact, without slowing down piracy any any in any way, it would break the internet. It would inevitably uh, bring down sites like Tumblr, Reddit, and Wikipedia. Uh, innocent sites, uh, it's just a bad idea all around. They'll come back. They're not done. They'll rewrite, rename. But it, this, the, the motion picture industry, the recording industry, will not stop until they get a law like this. We have to say this and no more. No farther. And what Thank they will probably do, we're, this will be incremental. We're going to yeah, lose this battle a bit. little bit at a time. They bit off more than they should have this time. And I'm sure they got a big lesson on this. So instead, it'll come back and it'll just chew around the edges. And then they'll chew a little bit more and they'll chew a little bit more. They'll wait a few years. They'll chew a little bit more. It's, I mean, there, there is this pressure, um, oh, yeah. unfortunately. Alas. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. My pleasure, Leo. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. We'll be back in color, full living color next week on Security Now. Security Now.